We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, everyone. Before we get to today's episode of Perpetual Chess, I just wanted to say thanks to everyone who has supported the show. Ways to support Perpetual Chess include telling a friend about the show, subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use, better yet, leaving a positive review on that platform. But most of all, I want to thank the people who've supported me with the new Patreon page. If you haven't heard, it's patreon.com slash perpetualchess, and the suggested donation there is $2 a month. So I tried to keep it as affordable as possible for as many people as possible. The donations go to cover things like the production, the audio equipment, and the hosting for the show. So if you can't afford it, you definitely shouldn't donate. But if you can, it's really appreciated and it helps out a lot. And guess what? I think it's also going to make the show better. What we're going to do is people who donate to the show will get advance notice of the guests and they will have the chance to send in questions to the guests. So if you feel like there's some topic I don't cover enough or if you have some favorite player that you're waiting for them to come on, well, there's a good chance we're going to get them at some point. So now you can sit back and wait. And then when someone's coming on who interests you, you can pounce like a cheetah and get your questions in. I think this is going to make it a better show overall, more community driven. I've always said I want this show to be by the people and for the people. Well, I think that this will help make that happen. So thanks again for all the support and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Perpetual Chess. We've got another great guest today who I will get to in a second. But first, I just wanted to quickly mention that there will not be an episode next week. Uh, Here in the United States, we have a holiday coming up, Thanksgiving, and I will be traveling. I will be in the car for four days with two children under five years old. So say a little prayer for me. I would rather be podcasting and I'll be back at it next week, but that's just a heads up. But The good news is for this week, we've got a great guest, supporter of the podcast, outstanding chess player, uh, woman's grandmaster, Tatia Vabrahamian. Tatia, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. 
So Tatyav, I know that you've listened to at least a few shows. Um, so you you may be keen to the fact that when someone's recently played in a tournament, we like to start out by talking about it. And unlike some recent guests, your your last tournament looks like it was a pretty good showing to me. So uh, how was um, your tournament in Los Angeles? Um, well, it was a very small tournament, only five rounds over two days. Um, I played way too many children that <laughs> I wanted to play. I, it, it was a pretty good tournament. Um, I wasn't, I can't say I was happy about the quality of my games, but I'm rarely happy about the quality of my games. But it's always nice to score some points. And I had a I had a long break. I didn't play during the summer. And then I had a tournament in September, and my next one is going to be over Thanksgiving, so I just wanted to get a small tournament in. Oh, okay, so what's coming up over Thanksgiving? Oh, there's a tournament in uh, Orange County. Well, it's in SoCal. It used to be in LA, now it's in Orange County. It's going to be in the American Open. Oh, fun. Yeah, that's a big one, right? Yeah, it hasn't been for the past few years, but this year there are a lot of players coming from the universities from Texas, so there'll be seven grandmasters. So I'm hoping I'll get to play at least like, three or four of them. Okay. And um, I know that <clears throat> you're, you, like a lot of us, are someone who plays and also does some coaching. So how like how on top of your game are you able to stay during the course of the year? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I I feel like I haven't been playing as much lately, especially this year, because I spent so much time in St. Louis working there. But, I mean, when I'm playing, I feel like I just give my all when, you know, I'm trying very hard at the board and trying my best in every game. But, yeah, the problem is between the tournaments. So that part is, I feel, it's a little bit challenging, especially when you have a lot of lessons or, like, I also teach after school, so sometimes, you know, things really pile up or when one of our coaches is not here, so I have to start covering for them. So, I mean, I'm not, um, I think my time management is quite poor, so I'm not on top of my game as much as I should be. Time management in chess or in life or in both? In both. Yeah. I think they might. I wonder if they go together. Like, I wonder if people who, you know, like time, time trouble addicts are also like often late for stuff. Probably. Uh, because, you know, it's like you, you have to feel this urgency to do something. Like in chess, you have to have this pressure to move. And in life, like you have to have a deadline to actually get things done. At least that's true for me. I don't, maybe it's different for other people. Maybe they, different things motivate them. Yeah, me too. I'm a procrastinator by nature. Um, so like definitely like back when I was in college, like writing papers and stuff like that, I would put off to the last minute. But I found that as a chess teacher, it's just not a good job for, for procrastinating. Like you, you just can't be late, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's, um, it's actually broken me in my habits a little bit because if you're the only, if the kids are all counting on you to be there, it's like the one thing you can't really mess around with. Yeah, but the problem is when you're at school and, you know, you have a paper to write, you can just pull an all-nighter, write your paper, turn it in, and then you're done. Or you study and then you get a test and the test is on what you studied. And unfortunately, you cannot do that in chess. Right. Well, do you, you try to, like, cram your opening lines when you have a tournament coming up? Um, sometimes. <laughs> huh. I mean- yeah, I have a tournament coming up and I have to start looking over my lines. And do you, so, I mean, you played, me, sorry, go ahead. I said you're making me feel bad about my preparation. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that was not my goal. I mean, I think uh, everyone knows how, that like, 
you know, unless you're top 20 in the world or whatever, you have to pay the bills. So it's no small feat to uh, strike a balance between like actually making a living, whether it's in chess or outside of chess and then competing, you know, and the the stronger you are, the the harder it is like the, you know, the the less room for error you have. So um, I think people uh, will understand and feel like you're doing just fine. Yeah, I mean, it's also hard because, you know, like you have a weakness in chess. Let's say your end games are bad and then you dedicate like months studying end games and then you go to the next tournament and you don't get a single end game. Right, exactly. It kind of feels like you wasted all your time. You know? Yeah. And do you feel like you have, is that speaking from personal experience or do you feel like you have a different weakness or um, or no weaknesses? <laughs> all the weaknesses. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, that that has happened to me before that I, like, I was trying to work on my, like, a certain opening in a positional chess and then that happened to me and I felt like I made the wrong decision and I was, like, really upset after the game, felt like a waste, but I don't think it's... I, w- I want to say it's never a waste, really, because, you know, you're improving and um, it's like just because you learn something or you know, you're doing it well while you're practicing doesn't mean you're going to be able to do it during the tournament. Like, sometimes before the tournament, like, I'll solve puzzles and I feel like I'm so sharp and then during the games I keep blundering. It's, it's, yeah. I don't know. It just feels like those two things are disconnected, even though I know they're not. Yeah, I think it makes a difference in the long run, but in the short run, it's uh, it's kind of tough to to see the connection. Mm-hmm. Um, so you work for the American chess Academy. Is that mm-hmm. okay? So, um, and so you, you said you do after school programs. You also do some private lessons uh, and you, we've seen your work in St. Louis. So I, I'm, it seems like you keep pretty busy. Yeah. So we have a, <clears throat> I work with the American chess Academy. We have locations um, in Southern California, in the Valley and Glendale and Burbank, Pasadena. Uh, so we actually have a physical location. So I teach there. I do some after schools. So I do private lessons. Um, it's 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 a reason. I, I don't think I work like twenty four seven. I'm constantly teaching. So um, so the job in St. Louis actually helps me a lot because you know it just like this year I took the whole summer off and I was there and you know, I could make like a decent amount of money that lasts me throughout the year. So it's kind of a nice to have a balance and have different incomes, I think. So you're not fully committed to one thing. So if something goes wrong, you know, you don't you don't have a backup. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I feel that way too. Like that part of the reason my motivation for starting this podcast was like just to have a different outlet. I mean, I I love teaching and it's fun, but like, yeah, you definitely sort of if there's never a break, you you it's hard to to maintain your motivation to be good at it yeah it's very easy to get burned out from teaching and it has happened to me before because you know it's self-employment but then it becomes a routine and that's one of the fun parts of you know playing chess and teaching is you have a flexible schedule and you get to travel and this and that but when you don't have tournaments coming up and you're just at home and you know like every day becomes the same then i think it becomes a little overwhelming yeah, for sure. And you, so this academy, um, you work with uh, your former coach, uh, mm-hmm. Ar- Armin Arbat. Sorry, can you can you Arbat say his name? Sorry, can you say it again? It's Armin Arbatsumian. Okay, I apologize, <laughs> Armin. Um, so uh, it looks sounds like it's a pretty successful program. If uh, there are that many locations. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, so California is and uh, LA even is so spread out, so it's very. You know, very easy to have different locations, but um, yeah, we have 
in Glendale only we have 150 kids okay. of all different levels, which I think for a chess school is really big. So how is it structured? They come to classes at night or you guys do tournaments or all of the above or what? Yeah, all of the above. We do four tournaments a year. One of the tournaments is actually with Casper of Chess Foundation, so they sponsor the tournament. There's actually um, prizes. That's and, great. Yeah, and uh, we have weekly classes. We have twice a week, we have more advanced group, twice a week, more beginners, the tournament player, but still beginner, and we have also complete beginner group, so, you know, for all levels. So they, we actually have a location rented, and we have the chess set set up and everything. But they just come, they, you know, they play, and then at the end we do a lecture, and we give them homework, and that's our structure. Okay, and you guys, do you guys, you mentioned loca- uh, renting a place for tournaments, but do you have, like, a physical location uh, for the academy generally? Yeah, that's what I mean. We have a location for an academy. Okay, that's what I, yeah, I, that's what I thought the first time, but then I wasn't sure the second time you mentioned it, so I just wanted to be clear because, you know, it's a lot of this is just my own personal interest because I know I know some chess teachers that are pretty successful uh, with, like, brick-and-mortar academies, but it always seems like higher-risk, higher-reward sort of business model than just, you know, working from your house or going to people's houses and schools and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like I said, it's good to do like different things. I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I know a lot of people aren't able to, but if you're able to, it's a good thing to do. Yeah, and and I, I imagine you have a good relationship since the since uh, Armin was your coach for so many years, and now you guys work together. Oh yeah, I have, yeah, Armin. I think is like one of the best people ever. Nice. He's been so nice to me since I moved here, and you know, he's he's so understanding when I take time off. I'll tell him now I'm going to St. Louis. It's you know he's. Like, he never tells me oh, you can't go or anything. Like, he's uh, also a world youth coach. So, like, those are the times that I have to be in town or if he has something to do, I have to be in town. Right. But I, I just take so much time off. You know, it's like I'm such a terrible employee. Because, ah. uh, you know, I play U.S. Championship. I play internationally. I'm in St. Louis all the time. No, <laughs> I mean, but come on, Tatyav. It's good for the brand to have, like, a chess star like yourself uh, <laughs> working for the company. But, no, but I mean, it's like it's so nice because I know someone's going to be covering for me, and you know, it's just understanding of what I do. And, yeah, no, it is good, and I it's have a relationship like that. Yeah, and it's not always a given that, like, within an organization, especially like sort of like small chess teaching sort of organization, that there's going to even be the coverage. You know, that that you would have someone to do it. Um, okay, so since since we've already mentioned uh, Armenia a little bit, uh, we might as well get into your background. So you came to the U.S. when you were. 13 um i i'm a sucker for the like come to the u.s stories and i find of course being that i host this podcast i find the the chess stories like the the interconnection of chess particularly interesting so you were like a young talent and came here um what was like how was that experience like both on both sides of it like leaving armenia and coming to a totally different place oh it's pretty terrible (laughs) (laughs) i believe it yeah um i mean I don't think, well, my experience is different because a lot of chess players come here as students, so I feel like that's more of a conscience choice to do that and, you know, make a choice to stay in the United States, and I was very young, so it was my family's choice to do that. Um, actually, my family applied to come to the U.S. in 1991, and they had a they had a visa, but things didn't work out, so they weren't able to come. And then in 2001, at some point, they got a letter saying, you know, you have three more months until your visa expires. And then 
and you know then your visa expires and you can't come here anymore so at that time our situation financial situation in Armenia was really bad because and after the collapse of the Soviet Union my mom lost her job my dad was making like $20 per month wow yeah and you know they're like electricity outages so we'll have electricity a few hours a day we wouldn't have like never had like hunting, running hot water and like we lived in the center of the city so we still had like water and uh, you know like life was still better than not be living in the center of the city but financially my family was really struggling so my parents decided you know they're gonna sell the apartment they sold the apartment at the cost of the tickets to come to the u.s and actually my dad couldn't come for the first few months i don't remember why not there was some issue i think with his paperwork or something like that so i came with my mom and my sister and then my dad joined us and I mean, it was a very difficult transition for me because it just came out of nowhere. My, you know, my parents told me I were moving to the U.S. Like, I didn't want to leave. I had my life there. I had my chess. And um, I think that's a very difficult age because, you know, you're a teenager. You, you already have a sense of yourself, but not really. And, you know, you have a life already. Um, you have your friends and everything. Uh, so it was very difficult for me when we moved here yeah under, understandably so there's there's a lot that i want to uh, follow up on from that but so first mm -hmm. of all I, i'm I, reading up a little bit it looked like so were your parents like academics or what was their background yeah both my parents were chemists in armenia um so my dad was working at a university i believe he was doing the research department uh but my mom stopped working like i i, I don't remember her Actually, yeah, I can't even remember her working because I feel like she lost her job pretty soon after. Yeah, I just wanted to highlight that because, you know, people listening might not realize, I mean, hopefully realize, but like, it's not like your parents weren't qualified to have work. Like, they're, you know, obviously, if they're chemists, they're very smart people, worked very hard in their field. So to, to be struggling that much to get by, I mean, and to have kids, I mean, it's got to be, you know, um, scary situation. So... Um, you know, obviously it's hard on the kid, but probably a good thing that you guys uh, made the move for the long term. Yeah, I mean, I, like at the time, of course, like I knew my family was struggling, but, you know, it's like you still don't have a full grasp on it or, and change is scary, especially change like that. Yeah, so, I mean, right now I realized that was the best thing to do, but at the time I was very resentful that I had to do it. Yeah, of course. And yeah, my parents, my parents, they're both very well educated. My dad was also a jeweler besides being a chemist. And I think that was his passion because um, that was, or maybe that's how he could make money, but that's why he was spending a lot of time on it. But, um, you know, they're both talented and smart people. So, of course, they're qualified to have a job. But when you have a revolution like that, all kinds of things can happen in your country. Yeah, for for sure. And so speaking of your country, obviously it's got rich chess history. Um, and I read that you were a product of the Armenian Chess House. So could you tell us a little bit about, I mean, I know that you were like a young talent and representing both Armenia and then later the U.S., but what was the chess education like there? Um, chess, yeah, it's a very different culture um, because when parents... 
I feel like in Armenia, when parents take their kids to chess, it's the goal is for their kids to become a chess player. It's not just, uh, you know, I want my kid to have something to do. I want my kid to do well at school. I mean, maybe it's different now because they do have chess in schools now. So, like, everyone is learning how to play chess. So I feel like now they're using chess as a different tool. But I think if you're taking your kid to chess school, you want, um, you want them to become a chess player. So my chess lessons consisted of three times a week of two, three hours each lesson, which is, I think, is completely unheard of in yeah. the U.S. for, like, <laughs> sure. a chess school. But in Armenia, that's normal. Like, that's, I think that's... That's just what you do. Wow, that's a, that's a that's amazing. I mean, I, that explains why you're so strong. For one thing, I mean, obviously, along with like the work that you put in and probably some talent. But so, what would be the nature of those lessons? Like, what would you do for those like nine hours a week? Oh my god, I I, I never put it that way. There's nine hours a week of lessons. I <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just thought like two times a week for two three hours. Um, uh, okay, let me try to remember. I think we'd start the lessons with playing someone, and then my coach, my my coach in Armenia was absolutely amazing. He's like the nicest person ever. My parent, his rate was twenty dollars per month, and my parents couldn't afford it, so he taught me for free for five years. Wow. Um. Yeah. And he was a big believer in the Dvoretsky book, so that is what we were working on. And at the time, of course, there's no computers, no access or anything. So he would make copies of the, um, what is the book that has all the novelties in it? Uh, mm. The Informant. Oh, right. Yeah. So that was a big thing, right? Because that's the only way you have access to games. And yeah. he, would, he didn't even have books. He would just have the, he would just copy the book. So that's another thing we would do. And also, um, before playing in a tournament, because we had the Armenian Youth Championship, so that's the tournament you have to win to qualify for World Youth. So we would copy the games of our opponents in the notebook. So we had so we knew uh, what our opponents play because you know it was a few high-rated kids that at the end you're going to have to play. So you basically instead of like looking them up on Chessbase, you're like copying their games right. in your notebook and copying the games from the informant your openings in the notebook. So I, I think I still have those my notebooks with the homework he would give me and like even the homework it wasn't a copy of paper he would like tell us the position and you write down the position and then you have to write a solution. I still have those notebooks with all the games and all the puzzles that I was given as a kid. That's funny. And you were so you started when you were eight and you were kind of identified as a talent right away. Is that like how does that happen? Like do you just have a coach who says you're good or is there like like how? How how did it people, I guess, I mean, I guess you probably have a rating system just like we do as I think about it. No, actually, our, our system there is very different. So you don't, uh, you play in, um, uh, oh my God, the words are escaping me. You play in this category tournaments. Like qualifiers? Um, okay. I think it's like a so I think it's a Soviet system. So you get like when you're a beginner, you play in fourth category, third, second, and first, and then you have to score, um, I believe, seven points out of nine. And once you become first category, you get your first rating of two thousand. So before I moved to the U.S., I've never heard of a rating below two thousand because you cannot go below two thousand. So that's so when a I fee- came fee- here fee- and I said this rating. No, no, no. It's like an Armenian rating. Oh, okay. It's not even a FIDE rating. Okay. No. Because they're not in a rated tournament. Gotcha. So you're, 
again, like, I don't know how I, I feel like it's still is the same system, but when I first came to the US and I see this rating, like, 1600, 1500, I was, I was, like, shocked. I was, like, 1600, they probably don't know how to play chess. <laughs> <laughs> What's a 1600 rating? Like, how can you be below 2000? Um, but uh, I think in Armenia, when you go to chess school, you have to know how to play chess. I don't think they, like, any of the coaches will be sitting here and kind of, you know, teaching you base in India and like if you make a miss, like it's unacceptable if you go on like you're messing up the pieces and you don't know how they move. I don't think anyone would accept you. Okay, so you you learn somewhere else and then you go there to get better. Yeah, I learned from my dad. It was very um, accidental. I think how I learned how to play chess. How do you mean? Um, well, I was at my my dad took me to his work and he was cleaning his office and. And then he had a chess set, so I asked him, like, what is this? And then he told me, oh, it's a game. So I, I asked him to teach me, and then he said, oh, I'll just play with my friends, and then you can watch me, and then you can learn. So that's how I learned how to play. Oh, so it's like the uh, the legend of, I can't remember which grandmaster, that, like, was it Capablanca who supposedly learned just by watching his dad? Well, I, I don't think it's just, like, out of nowhere. Like, I think he's, like, taught me how the pieces move. Okay. And then, like, I learned more about the game by just watching his friends. Like, he thought that's a good way to learn. Okay. Uh, that's okay. how I started playing. And, Tatiev, I follow you on Twitter. And, um, you know, I, I enjoy your, your tweets across the spectrum. But, but, <laughs> <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that for now. But one thing I've noticed is you've got great pride in, in Armenia. Um uh, you know, when there's tweets about the the Armenian genocide, you know, obviously extremely tragic event in uh, in global history. You you often highlight that, and when when Armenian chess players are uh, doing well in tournaments, obviously most prominently Leveronian, but uh, others as well. You're you're always cheering them on. So, um, what do you think? Uh, why do you think you have such a strong sense of place with your your home country? Um, I think that's how I was raised. I think. I think that's how everyone in Armenia is. Like everyone has a big pride about their country, which has its good things and bad things, of course, as as all things do. Right. You of know, course. It's, like it's good to be proud of your culture and your heritage, but you don't want to be so blinded. You don't see the bad sides. And I think that was one of the challenges when I moved here because, like, I had this strong identity of an Armenian, and then I moved to the U.S. and then, you know, it's like a new culture. Everything is different, and it's kind of like where do I fit in, like, where do my beliefs fit in, and that was a really long journey and, like, an internal struggle for me. Yeah, I mean, moving, like you said, moving at the age of 13 is hard. Uh, you know, as a as a teacher, I've noticed that I, like, you know, when I teach young students, like, say, below age 10, girls are just nicer than boys, you know? They're, they're just... They're just more respectful and more supportive of each other. But then sometime around the early teens, it kind of flips for a while. Um, girls can be mean to each other at that age. And, you know, Southern, I mean, California, sort of the the California high schools from all the TV shows sort of have this reputation of being like very cliquish. So I don't know how, how your English was when you came in, but I, I mean, it must have just been immense culture shock, like to start to to be changing everything like that at that age yeah um well when we first moved in um we were living with um at first well like we didn't have any money so we were living with my dad's best friend's family who's been here for like forever like 20 30 years or something like that 
And then we moved in with another family or friends with my parents. They were actually, when my parents were applying to come to the U.S., it was them and I think two other families. They got to know each other. They knew each other. And the other families moved, but my parents didn't. So we were staying with them. And we're staying in Burbank, which is, I think, more American. It's, like, less immigrant. So I was going to the school, and, like, I didn't speak English, and it was just terrible. I think 9-11 was one of my first days of school, and everyone was watching TV. And, like, I had no idea what was going on. I was amazed that there's a television in an American school. Like, that was the part that, like, really amazed me. Uh, But then we moved to Glendale, and Glendale is very immigrant-populated, especially Armenian. So I started going to a school that had an ESL program, so it was easier, so I could make friends and actually talk to people, and my English started to improve. When I moved here, I didn't speak English. Wow, I can't imagine what that must have been like. Um, well, I mean, obviously, you, you've you've done fine for yourself. Uh, since then, did your parents, were they able to find jobs, um, like, eventually? Yeah, um, well, at first we were on welfare, and my mom went... Back to school, actually, she got she became a nurse, which I think is amazing because yeah. she also doesn't speak English. But um, you know, she managed, and now she has a good job. Uh, my dad was also doing some jewelry jobs uh, because one his best friend was a jeweler, so he was um, he found some kind of a job. Nice. And you mentioned you have a sister. Is she uh, older or younger? She's older. Okay. Does she play chess at all? She knows how to, but um, I think my parents actually taught her how to play chess first, but she didn't really get into it. Okay. Okay, and so, like, what was your rating um, when you came here? Like, so age 13, 2001, like, how how good were you compared to the other kids of your age? Um, I think I was 23-something. Oh, wow, okay. I think I was overrated. (laughs) That's that's rare. That's that you might be the first person on perpetual chess to, to admit to being overrated at any point. Um, not that everyone comes in and says they were underrated, but you just don't hear that that admission very often. Yeah, because uh, you know when you first when you, uh, I don't know how the system was or is now, but like uh, when you first play, the way your rating increases is more drastic, right? Right. Before you play five games. Oh, so you're, US, uh, you're saying you're USCF, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah not like Yeah, that makes sense, okay. So, small sample, yeah. Um, okay, but still, I, I like... I think I maintained that rating somehow, but uh, I don't know if it represented my strength. I, I, I was number one for my age on the years I wasn't in the same category as Hikaru. Okay. <laughs> so, in most years, I was number one in my age. Um, okay, and that's boys and girls alike, right? Mm-hmm. That so so I imagine pretty quickly you started getting invited to like you know uh, junior open and stuff like the junior closed rather and stuff like that. Um, so I pl- I didn't play in, in my U.S. championship until I was sixteen. Um, I'm not sure if I was qualifying by rating, but there was a rule back then that you when you switch federations you have to wait three years. And since I represent in Armenia in World Youth, I, that applied to me. Um, I, I don't want to say like I was qualified. That's the reason I didn't play. Like I don't even know if I could qualify by rating. But in I played my first U.S. championship. Uh, I want to say 2004, and that year was uh, something weird was going on because they had two U.S. championships. I think actually that's the year that Jennifer won the Invitational. 
Okay. Oh my god, this is, this is so long ago. Like I can't imagine. Like I can't believe how long two thousand four. How long ago two thousand four? Yeah. But I think they had a. I think they had a special tournament because they want, needed the qualifier for the Olympiad. And then, if you remember back then, US Championship was men and women played together, and which of course doesn't make sense for the purpose of determining a champion. Like it was sixty four players, and like whoever scored the best from women. Um, was the U.S. Women's Champion. So they had like two U.S. Championship at the air. I want to say it was 2004. Okay. And the, were there other, so, and there's probably the U.S. Women's Olympiad. So when were you, when did you make your debut there? Oh, actually when I first moved here, my first big tournament was the um, the Nationals. So I won the Nationals twice before eighth and ninth grade. Let me be the the last person to congratulate you for that. Oh, <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. Uh, first Olympiad was 2000, 2008, actually. Okay. Yeah, so this was your first Olympiad for um, for the U.S., but in my uh, intrepid research, I so you were, I read that you went to the 96 Olympiad, or you watched Polgar in the 90s, Judah Polgar in the 96 Olympiad? Yeah, I mean, I didn't play it actually, obviously, but yeah, that's the year that Olympiad was held in Armenia. Okay. Which is okay. Now that I think about it, I think it's it's just amazing that the Olympiad was awarded to Armenia <laughs> during those years. Well, I mean, the, you know, FIDE will go anywhere. That, that much is uh, well established. Yeah, because like sometimes, like I asked like a few players, and they, the way they described it, it sounded a little sketchy <laughs> okay like uh you know like the way you find a hotel or it's like the food and the condition but i mean understandably so because 1996 armenia was like not a was not in a good place but i mean it was just amazing watching the olympiad and you know being in a room and all the players my dad would take me every day so we got to watch the games that so that must have been pretty inspiring yeah it, it really was you... uh, i mean it's just like olympiad is the best tournament to be in. I mean, playing in the Olympiad is just amazing. Even watching it is amazing. You know, all these great players in one room. And, like, when you're playing, you can just walk through the hall and then you see, like, Aronia and Magnus and, like, all these great players in one room and you're just playing in the same room. It's just mind-blowing. Yeah, I always feel that way on, like, the Chess 24 broadcast, like, when they go to break. Like, you, you know, I obviously the, the coverage is great, too. But when they go to break and they're just showing the room, it's always like, you know, randomly like Magnus walks out in front of the camera and like then there, there he is talking to Aronian or whoever. And it's like you, you get more of a sense of like what it's like to be there, you know, uh, which, you know, for me, like that's basically as close as I'll get. So, um, yeah, it's fun to watch. Yeah, it's amazing. Like in the dining hall or in, like in the elevator, you run into someone or in the bar, it's like just like magnus walks in or someone just walks in right like i remember one i think last olympiad like i was walking behind this guy and he's just like the way he's walking he's like stumbling around his like shirt is tucked out and i was like who is this person and then at some point he turned around and was magnus and i was like oh my god is magnus walking in front of me <laughs> that's funny um so you said that judah polgar was your hero uh i mean <laughs> Obviously, there's lots of reasons she could be your hero, but like, what was it about her that that made you um, look up to her? Well, she was the only woman playing among men, and I thought um, that was really inspiring. And you know, because in my um, 
in my group um, with my coach. I think I was the only girl and there was another girl. And I was the strongest or one of the strongest. And like when you're playing in the Armenian Championship, there's a girl section and a boy section. And I think I wasn't worse than any of the guys, but I was playing in the girl section and I was, you know, winning and playing in World Youth. But, you know, like I always had this competitive urge, like I wanted to beat all the boys and like play among them. And it was really inspiring to see her do it. Yeah, amazing. And I, from what I've gathered from your, your chess.com videos, it seems like you, you maybe have a similar style. Are you an attacking player? Yeah, I'm a very aggressive player. Nice. Um, yeah, so she's, she's a good hero. Have you, have you read her books? No, actually, I haven't. And I, <laughs> I didn't even listen to her podcast on your show. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll forgive <laughs> you. It's really bad because when I signed, I was so excited and then I never listened to it. Okay. I mean, as a fan of hers, I don't feel like we covered all that much new ground. But yeah, she's, you know, she's got some good stories in there. But one thing I will say is like... Uh, her books are are really good. I hadn't read them either until she was coming on the podcast, and then I had like a week to read all three of them. But I mean, it's kind of a, a unique blend of like you know memoir and game review, and she kind of mixes them in. And her enthusiasm for chess sort of really shines through in the books. And the other thing that shines through is sort of her appreciation of like the moments, you know, of like how unique it was to be like at the Olympiad and be this like amazing young talent with Kasparov, like going out of his way to check out your games and stuff like that. Like she's got amazing memory of like lots of details and uh, like good appreciation for, for like how much, you know, how incredible a life she's led. So, and it's good for teaching too, because like Mm -hmm. uh, since she goes from when she's like, you know, a young girl, it's like not everything is like so advanced that, you know, kids can't learn from it. And the stories are good. The stories she tells leading up to the games are good hooks for the kids. So anyway, strong recommendation for for all three of those books. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I I just, I mean, it's just amazing just by her existence. I think she has inspired so many people, so many women. You know, she didn't even have, like, she doesn't even have to say anything, right? You just hear, like, especially before she quit, of course. Like, you go to a tournament and you see Judith Polgar and you're like, oh, my God, it's Judith Polgar. Yeah. Yeah. And her games are, like, they're so much fun. I mean, like, yeah, like she could have had that rating without being, like, such a fun player to study, you know. But but she happens to just have an amazing, like, style that everyone can learn from. Um. Okay. Well, since I mentioned the topic of books, Tatyov, as you probably know, I'm uh, I'm always looking for book recommendations for our listeners. So, do you have any books that were particularly, other than the Dvoretsky books uh, that you mentioned, that were like uh, really formative for you? Yeah, I mean, I definitely grew up on the Dvoretsky books. Um, oh my God! And I have to admit that I don't read chess books. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's true of a lot of our guests, but but uh, the you know, sunshine is the best disinfectant. So it's good that you admit it. No, I actually like Augur's books a lot. Yeah. I think they're really good. I feel like he kind of follows... I think Augur is like this generation, or today's Dvoretsky. Yeah, I agree. And he said that he learned so much from him, so I think it's uh, not not a coincidence. Um, yeah, and I, I guess when it comes to like teaching, Dvoretsky is probably the one who paved the way for, or at least set kind of the... Um, like the system of how to teach or how the approach to yeah. follow. 
And yeah, I mean, Algar's books are just great. I have all the series I've I've done. He's attacking, ma- not the attack, like the Grandmaster series. What is attack and defense? I think. Uh, one. I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank too. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. So I've done that one. I've done his positional books. Um, I'm working through that. Like I, I try to vary it up. Like I don't, you know, I don't want to just, you know, you take one book and you just work one thing. So I try to. Sometimes do end game, sometimes do like positional chess. So I've I've going through at least halfway through his strategic play, and he's and I'm also working on his end game book. Okay, I, I really recommend his books. His books are really good. Yeah, it's been, definitely been a theme. So um, yeah, I'm I'm I still haven't gotten a chance to uh to check most of them out, but um definitely like when I get the time to to sink my teeth into some chess study. Uh, I'll be going straight for those books. Um, so you mentioned so besides books, like w- if you do get a chance to study chess, like what what do you do? Like I mean, okay, for example, obviously you have the U.S. Women's Championship. I'm sure your biggest tournament of the year, months away. So how mm-hmm. much of your time is spent like preparing for <laughs> your friends and opponents, and how many how much of it is just like generically trying to improve your chess? Uh, well, I try not to, like, I'm not going to start studying for the US moments right now because I feel like if I put so much emphasis on one tournament and make it like the highlight of my year, it's just too much pressure on me. So and, have you learned that from experience? Um, like, did you used to do that or you just sort of, you kind of knew all along as a seasoned chess player? I think just the US championship just has so much baggage for me because of my history. Right. And my results, uh, I think just in and of itself, the tournament is just, like, like I, I already cannot just play it like any other tournament. Like, right. there's just too much baggage and too much history. And, you know, if, um, especially I feel like last year after every game, it wasn't just like, oh, I lost the game. Oh, I won a game. It's like, oh, I won a game. Now this is going to happen. Oh, this person is doing like this. And last year they did like this. The other year they did like that. So... You know, all these things, like all these scenarios after every game that I had in my mind. And then, like, what happened at the end, you know, was, you know, because, like, when I looked at the, went back and looked at the tournament, like, after I think first half of the tournament after five rounds, Sabina was at 50%. So, it's, you know, she wasn't the favorite. Like, you have 50% after five rounds, you're not the favorite to win when other people have, like, four out of five or ten half out of five. And then I realized, oh, you know, this, like, it's a long tournament and, um, you have to pace yourself and you cannot have all this baggage, which of course is very easy to say in theory, but in practice, it's very hard to do. Yeah, for sure. But um, yeah, and, and I'm going to have a lot of tournaments. Um, I'm playing a tournament this weekend. I'm going to play in Reykjavik Open. Oh, fun. I'm hoping to get at least two more tournaments before that. So I cannot just ignore those tournaments and focus on US Championship. Yeah. So- but uh, as far as the US Oh, sorry. oh no! I was just gonna say. So it sounds like it's more like the in terms of my question, it's more the latter. You just want to get better at chess, and the you know the rest will take care of itself. Well, in general, I do. But of course, for the US Championship, I do specific preparation because I've played in the US Championship so many times, and I've played a lot of the players so many times. And it's actually very funny because I feel like my every US Championship is like the same. Like I get the same colors against everyone. Like, I played against Sabina probably, like, eight times or nine times, and I played against her with white at least six times. 
Huh. It's like, and then, you know, against Nazi, I played like white every time. Um, there are like several players, like I get the same colors against them, like every tournament. So I feel like my US championship is not just repetitive in terms of the players, but instead of the, in terms of the colors I get against them. That's so it's, okay. So that, I, yeah, it's funny. I want to get back to the U.S. Championship, but this can't. I, you're saying that makes me think of the the Hu Yifan controversy. I can't can't help but open that can of worms. What do you think of the like her being re- repaired against a woman like over and over and over again? You think uh, it was random or no? Um, I, I I really didn't understand that because um, so she like her whole issue was she thought that the organizers were conspiring against her, right? Right, uh, presumably. And I wasn't sure. I I wasn't sure why she would feel it would be that way because it's this is not a FIDA tournament, you know. It's not like I I know I can't even think of a FIDA tournament where she would play in where both men and women play together. Okay, it's not like let's say the Rapid and Blitz tournament or something like that where everyone can play. In. You know, it's like an open turn. It's at least not an open tournament, but it's like organized by one person and I thought she would have good relationship with the organizer. So it was very surprising that she would think that someone's conspiring against her. Yeah. Well, the thing is it's it, I think at first she might've felt that way too, but at some point, like it's so statistically improbable, like, you know, the first time you think, Oh, that's a coincidence. And then the second time you think, okay, you know, it happens. And the third time you're like, this is getting weird. And then by the fourth time, you're like, what the hell is going on? How does this keep happening? And then it carried over into her next tournament. So I certainly don't think she handled it the best way, but I could see how like that, you know, uh, you could start with like benign explanations and then let your mind go elsewhere for, uh, how it keeps happening. Yeah, I think, um, I'm sure it was frustrating for her because, um, like, for a long time, like, I saw her play in this tournament, the um, Grand Prix and even the Women's World Championship. Well, Women's World Championship, I can understand. It's, like, one tournament per year. But the Grand Prix, like, takes up, like, how many tournaments? Is it, like, four or five tournaments? Now there's, like, half of your yearly schedule. So I was, like, for the past few years, I always wondered, like, why is she playing in this? You know, it's, like, you're so much stronger. You keep beating these people. Like what? What purpose is it serving you? Well, it's a like, pretty good, <laughs> pretty good paycheck for one thing. Yeah, but um, I mean, she lives in China, and doesn't the government like take most of your money, anyways? Or I thought maybe the federation maybe is making her own thing, but even from their point of view, I would think they would want her, you know, to grow as a player. Like how right. many, how many times can you win the same tournament? Yeah, no, it's a good point about the government. I I forgot about that. Um, yeah, well, and now it seems like she's sort of moving in that direction, right? Like she's she's mostly trying to compete in in men's events. Um, they're open events. So they're not men's events. That yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that no, was a, I, I think it's gonna be good for her as a chess player because it's like it's really interesting because when I look at this top women and the tournaments they play in, they like they. Their schedule is very similar to this top chess players like Magnus and Levon. Like they play in very select tournaments because you know they don't they don't have that many tournaments to pick from. But when I look at the top women, they're like twenty five, twenty six hundred, and well, very few are twenty six hundred. Actually, wait, no one is twenty six hundred. Before said to be fun, right? I think a couple are close, but I don't, I don't think it's just. I don't think Juven Jun is twenty six. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, so most of them are mid to high 2500 
the very top ones. And there are so many tournaments for them to play in, but they only play in the select tournament. And like I, I probably it's financial, but I just always wonder um, why why not broader New Horizons. Actually, yeah. one year I was playing in um, that one year two years ago. I was playing for U.S. team in the world team, and Anna and Crush declined, so I was playing board one. So I was playing all these top women, like Kastinyuk and Muzichuk, and so I was preparing, and at some point I realized, like, I'm seeing the same games over and over, and I'm like, why is this happening? And then I realized it's because they're constantly playing against each other, so when I'm preparing, I'm just looking at the same games over and over and over. Oh, right, from, like, different sides. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, like, because I'm looking at a game, and I'm like, I've seen this game, and the next round, I'm like, I've seen this game, this looks so familiar, like, where is this from? Then I'm like, oh, they're just playing against each other. And like for me, I play in the US Championship every year and like I get that experience like I'm playing the same players. But it's one tournament and I play, on a good year, I play like 10 tournaments. Right. And anyway, like I'm not trying to criticize them. I'm just, um, you know, I'm just like, it's just something I've noticed. And like, I wonder if it's just financial or it just probably makes more sense. To yeah. Well, hopefully we'll have uh, have... Kostyanik or someone like that on someday and can try to get to the bottom of it um yeah i actually admire her a lot like she's she's a very fierce competitor if you ever seen her play like she is like she's like a true professional she approaches like if you see her play her intensity here like you can feel like she's a competitor I, I, i'm sure you know she's more um I don't want to say out there, but she's like more open. She's done more interviews and things like that. So when you read about her, like her preparation, I think before she played Hu Yifan in the World Championship match, like years ago, she said she went somewhere away from civilization to prepare for that match alone. So she's she's a very like a strong competitor. Yeah, yeah, very very focused. Whenever they like pan to her on the mm-hmm. uh, um, on the camera. Um, okay. Yeah, even if she's giving a symbol or anything, she's just her intensity, and like I, I admire her. I admire that a lot. Yeah. Okay, so getting back to the U.S. Championship, I mean, I feel like this is a, a topic that's come up a few times because the the chess world can seem so small. But I imagine a lot of these players are are friends of yours that you're playing every year. Um, so is it hard to like you know this is the biggest tournament for all of you, and you're all sort of competing for the same title? Is that challenging? Mm. I don't think so. That's good. <laughs> because I think I think everyone just realizes that you know everyone's on the same boat and everyone's there to win. So you're not like um, feeling particularly bad for anyone because you know like if it's not them, it's you and right. I mean, the one time I felt really bad when I was playing Anya last year, and like she blundered against me, she blundered a queen, and yeah. it was a very difficult time for her because she had just lost her mother. And I mean, that time I felt really bad, like even because during the game I try not to feel bad, but right. I mean, I think you you can't feel bad for your opponent, but like after I felt really bad, and like I wanted to say something, but I feel like I can't. Right. Yeah, so that time was, um, you know, that's what the one time I felt like really, really bad. Yeah, that situation can is awkward just generally if someone has like something sad happen to them and you don't know what you should say or if you should say something. So if you throw in a like super competitive chess game on top of that, and I would be, 
I would be even more confused about like how I should address it. Yeah, because you know when you're beating a friend and they're really upset, you want to comfort them. Like you're the reason why they're upset. Right. Yeah. Not a difficult spot to be in. Yeah, and especially with the the blunders. Yeah, because those those sting so much. Like even more so. Like okay, if someone just grinds you down, you know, you you tip their cap, you tip your cap to them, and and move on. But if it's kind of like feels unjust, you know, it's got to be even harder. Yeah. 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 That that was. Okay, like I'm saying, like I feel bad about her. She played. She felt hundred times worse than me. Right. Yeah, but every every chess player knows what it feels like. That that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Tatiana, I think we've covered most of the serious stuff that I have here on my list. But obviously, I I, I need to ask you about a topic very dear to you, uh, penguins. <laughs> well, and uh, what what's the story with penguins? How did uh they become your um your your obsession? Um, I don't know, actually. It wasn't specific things, but I feel like a lot of people encouraged it. <laughs> so I would get all these gifts, like toys and like shirts and T-shirts and everything. So I think over time, it just grew and grew. I just, you know, just really love them. They're they're amazing creatures. So I imagine you've seen March of the Penguins. No, actually, I haven't. <laughs> oh, really? I know the main penguin dies, and I don't want to watch it. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> Um, yeah, I actually, I once told a friend of mine, actually, the, the friend's husband may or may not hear this podcast, but a friend of mine that I liked penguins, they were one of my favorite animals, and she kind of ran with it. Uh, they're like, I like them, but like, you know, that's like if someone asks you what your favorite animal is, you, you have to name one, you know, so it's not like I was obsessed with them or anything. But anyway, I have a giant stuffed penguin in my house, too, that I wanted to show you before we were recording, but I didn't get a chance. But so I've also gotten penguin related gifts <laughs> yeah i have like a box full of them and i was thinking of donating them but i kind of feel bad well it's a part of your brand so <laughs> yeah like my hair <laughs> right yeah yeah so is your hair like do you keep it the same color or like uh like how do you decide if you want to change it uh actually my hair is blue now so i changed it for uh for the season but during the summer i added some pink in it because it's more a summery color okay and do you know uh, Kostya Kavutsky? Yeah, of course. And did you see that he dyed his hair blue? Yeah, but his hair doesn't look blue. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what, what, what happened there. Do you, do you have any advice for him as like a blue-haired individual? Uh, actually, maybe I think maybe he washed it and it faded into that. So I'm kind of worried about like, <laughs> because like when you get this kind of colorful hair, every time you wash it, it fades, and then sometimes the fading process is good. Sometimes it's just terrible. So I'm kind of scared of what's going to happen to my hair after a few washes. Uh-oh, speaking <laughs> the voice of experience. So you must get some funny comments from kids about it. No, actually, kids, I love my hair, and they always comment. They're like, oh, I like your purple hair. One of my students told me he likes my blue hair, so I said, oh, you don't like my purple hair. I said, oh, I like your purple hair, but mine is curly, because my natural <laughs> hair is curly. And I was like, like I, I never thought they would be they would pay so much attention to it. No, yeah. but I love my hair. That's funny. Do they, I, I'm guessing they asked to touch it and stuff like that. Mm, nah. Okay. I think it's my hair is stained, so I don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and Tatiev, what else? Like, what are your interests outside of chess? Um, I'm into fitness and healthy living. So and cooking. So I try to live a healthy lifestyle. So many healthy chess players these days. Every time I ask someone, they're like exercising. No one, no one says like, well, one or two exceptions, but no one really says smoking and drinking. 
Well, I mean, I think everyone does it. It's just the one says it. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's true. I mean, and yeah, if you're going to do smoking and drinking, then you need you need to exercise even more. So. So if you ask me what I'm passionate about and I say drinking alcohol, it's going to make me sound like a degenerate. This is true. Although you did have a tweet about, you did have a tweet on that topic, I believe. Oh, about buying wine? Yeah, buying wine at 11 a.m. Yeah, you got to prepare for the week. Yeah, no, it happens. Um, but I think it's like a trend now. In, maybe it's just because I live in Southern California and everything is just exaggerated here. I think a lot of people are into healthy living and fitness. Because now every store I go to, they have a um, section of uh, fitness clothes, like, you know, workout clothes. And, like, you go on Instagram, well, again, maybe it's just directed at me because that's what I follow. All this, like, all these people who are building their brand just based on fitness and healthy lifestyle. So you're trying Which to eat. Good thing. You're trying mm-hmm. to eat healthy as well? Yeah, I like on Sundays I'll meal prep, so I'll make my meals for the week, which is really time saving actually. So I'll make like lunch and salads and like I'll cut my vegetables. So when I come home, I can just put something in the oven and cook quickly. Nice. And so, like, what sort of uh, diet do you try? I mean, not like diet in the sense of losing weight, but diet and like uh, what sort of foods are you trying to eat to to have a healthy lifestyle? Uh, well, I was vegetarian since high school. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, like senior year of high school, I think, or maybe junior. Um, but I started eating fish several years ago, so I'm a pescatarian now. Okay. Um, which I kind of feel bad about, but I think it's healthier than... At least the way I was eating vegetarian was not healthy because you can't eat, like, pasta and right. carbs, rice. Um, I'll try to eat... I try to eat mainly... I mean, what I like to eat and what I eat are a little different. But I, I try to eat a lot of vegetables. I, I just like to roast vegetables, like anything you put in the oven, I think just tastes good. And like um, try to eat more protein because I work out and like I lift weights. So I try to okay. eat more like lean and clean diet. Gotcha. Um you guys are such uh, such good good role models for our, our younger listeners with your your healthy eating. I can I'm good on the exercise, but I'm not so I'm not such a good uh, exemplar of healthy eating. I have to say. No, neither am I. Actually, like it's it, like when I eat out or when that's my problem. When I eat out, like all my rules go out of the window. Or during the tournament because I'm a stress eater, so right. I just eat anything, especially like because a lot of times I have uh, trouble sleeping. Mm-hmm. especially during tournaments so when i don't sleep well you know it's like coffee and chocolate and like anything just to give my energy out yeah but, uh, i think if i could apply this to when i'm traveling then that'd be good but i do no i mean i think exercising is easy so to say it's you can do it but being disciplined to eat right because you know you eat more than you exercise you have like several meals a day and you work out once a day so it's harder to be eating right so right. many times yeah, no, and I mean it's generally harder to eat healthy when you're traveling just because you, you know you don't have the groceries that you would have and the access to make stuff. But also competing in a chess tournament, you know, like decision fatigue is a thing. Like the more decisions you make, the easier it is to make bad ones. So it's like you know, and obviously the nature of a chess competition is all you're doing is making decisions. So when you have another one about what to eat, I think it's hard to to necessarily make the you know, the choice that would be the healthiest. At least oh, that, I like that. At least that's my excuse. 
I'm such a bad decision making. I'm a decision maker. I'm gonna start using that excuse. Exactly, decision That's fatigue. Great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. All right. Um. So, what do you do? Okay, we're almost done here. But like, what do you do in LA? Like, how do you like life in SoCal now that you're, you know, sufficiently adjusted from moving as a, a teenager? Oh, I love LA. I think it's <clears throat> my, my favorite place to be. It, you know, it's always nice. The weather is nice. It's so pretty. I don't like the traffic, but fortunately, I'm self-employed, so I don't have to be on the freeway during the rush hour. But I think Southern California is amazing. Yeah, great weather. Seems like strong chest culture, too. I think more so in NorCal now, unfortunately. But I think our scholastic chest is pretty strong. Because every time I go to a tournament, my opponents are getting younger and younger. Like yeah. last, last tournament I played in, my opponent was tiny. And yeah. then I, I looked him up, and then he said he was born in like 2007 like or something. Oh my goodness! And then like I had to take a moment to see like how old like how old is 2007. So that was your because last it's... your last round opponent? Or, no, it's I... like my first round. Oh okay. Um, yeah, because I looked at the cross table. I didn't look at the games, but you played a couple like title players whose names I recognized, and then a couple sort of like you know 22 to 2300s who I didn't. So I'm guessing those were the the youngins yeah because when i see someone born in 2000 i still don't think they're real people even though some of them like graduating from high school already Uh, yeah so yeah when i see like 2007 like i have to take a moment and like actually do the math in my head just to see how old they are because it's you know time is just going so fast and it's it's kind of crazy nice okay so all right last topic tatyev so we talked generically about um you know your your preparation and books and stuff like that but like what what advice do you give your students? Like, what's your philosophy of how people should should improve at chess? Um, well, that's a general question, but I think the main thing is tactics. Yeah, being sharp and being able to calculate. Um, because I don't know until like eighteen hundred, two thousand. I feel like it's the most important thing. Because I see like players, they'll play, like they'll learn an opening, they blitz out their moves, and then later they'll like blunder, they'll miscalculate. So I think uh, being able to calculate and like I think that's the talent. That having that talent is important. Like being sharp, like having that intuition for tactics. So I think it's very important to be able to build that up. Yeah, that's generally my go-to advice as well. Although I'm, I've been surprised how many guests here have said different things. Um, like what? Uh, you know, talking about chess, like Jan Gustafsson was talking about chess psychology. And, um, you know, people say, like he also said, just just study what you like. Uh, I'm trying to think of uh, other examples. But for me, it's like tactics is, the, you know, is the answer, at least up in, like you say, up until around, say, 2000 or something like that. Um, but but people's people's advice runs the gamut. I think it's kind well, of... Not as interesting an answer, maybe. But I think for younger players, like psych, I feel like some of them have some psychological issues, but for a lot of them, they just kind of let go of things more easily. Right. Because, again, they don't have this baggage of, oh, like this is going to happen, or that's going to happen, or I've had this experience. Like some of them do, but like they'll get into a bad position and then they won't be like, oh, no, I messed up my game, now I'm bad. They, like they don't care about having to make a decisions that are you know it's like you have to put a piece on a bad square and they're not like oh no like 
what did I do? Now I have to make the decision for them to just play. And like when you say study what you like, I think that's a good thing to do when you're not motivated. Right. Yeah, when you're old like me, it's good advice, I think. But if you're like, yeah, really trying to climb the ladder, um, you kind of need to be practical about where where the best uh, return on your time is. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of it, you have to change your attitude. And this is something, who did I hear this from? This is from, um, like I ran an interview or something from Michael Braun, who's a player from Southern California. Right. If you know him. Yeah, he's super... He, speaking of good tactics, yeah. And he said, like, oh, he's always, like, fascinated by the position that's in front of him, you know, because every time you get a new position and, you know, like, you may never have, have that position again. And he just tries to explore the position and learn something new. And I think that's a good attitude to have because sometimes you find yourself in a position you don't like. So whenever I do that during the game, you know, I just try to tell myself, okay, you know, like, I don't like this position or I don't know this position at least I can learn something from this. Nice. Yeah, that's good advice for sure. Again, this is something good in theory and practice doesn't always <laughs> right. work. Yeah. But I think, you know, it's important like if you keep doing it, uh, it can become a, become a habit and instead of like, I don't know if other players do it, but, you know, blaming yourself during the game or getting angry at yourself, kind of change your attitude so you can be more objective about the position in front of you. Yeah, I think everyone has to has to reckon with that uh, to, to some degree. Um, okay, so Tatyav, um, how if people would like to thank you for this wonderful interview um, or otherwise um, reach out to you, what's, what's the best place to contact you? <laughs> Oh, I don't want people to come back to me. <laughs> well, you're on, you're on Twitter. I'll out you there. So Yeah, I was kidding. Yeah, I think on Twitter because I try to keep my Facebook um, uh, more private. I think on Twitter is a good way to contact me. Okay. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll link to that, but everyone leave her alone. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, I think that that is everything. So good luck in the North American Open. Um, and oh, it's just the American Open. Oh, American Open. I can't keep yeah. the continental names straight because I always feel like they're kind of generic. So it's like I I always know the tournament but not the name. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, we'll be rooting for you. Uh, okay. And good luck oh, beyond okay. that as well. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for coming on, Tatu. Thanks for having me. Thanks to everyone who supports Perpetual Chess. I spend about five hours a week on each episode, and even though I love doing it, it can be hard to find the time. Donations from listeners make a huge difference and make Perpetual Chess a lot more sustainable. Special shout out to my Patreon Perpetual partners. They are Johnny McMenamin, Todd Bryant, Greg Shahadi, Jen Scream, Timothy Ha, Tatia Vabramahan, Paul Sweeney, Jennifer Shahadi, Pascal Charbonneau, Zhao Cheng, Kelly Palmer, Matthew Tedesco, Gary Andrews, Krishna Galapakrishnan, Ricky Grahava, Chris Flanagan, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Rob Lazorchek, Jennifer Valens, Tim Seymour, and Chris Wainscott. Thanks a lot, everyone. I'll catch you guys next week with another episode. Sports Social Podcast Network.